It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And in the history of this show, we have interviewed the greatest legends in this business, his history. We've only interviewed one legend twice, and that is this man. He is one of the best big men of all time. He's one of the greatest trainers of all time. And this is our second go-around with him. He's that freaking important. Mr. Bill DeMott. <laughs> second. Yeah, I, I'm taking that. So I, I'm Goldberg's first match, and I'm the first two-time repeater on this, and I'm ready to go. Absolutely. Hey, Bill, there's a reason why you're second on this. Uh, there's a reason. You want, uh, you want me to get into why? Because that, that dumbass Texas and that we got uh, running the control panel over there, he deleted you. He threw you up in that cloud. <laughs> but one day when it rains down there, when there's a big thunderstorm, and all of a sudden you look out and you pull – and you see this big blob. This 350-pound like splash. That looks like pool. me. Black cloud come down. That's you. And it finally expunged itself from Layfield's cloud there. So welcome back, man. <laughs> We're going to do everything we can to make this show the best. It's going to be hard to top the original. But you know what? If anybody can do it, Mr. Oh, Bill and I can you. do it. So welcome. Welcome to story, brother. Thank you, Coach. We had a lot of fun in the first go-round. And uh, – I'm pretty sure I'm going to make you two giggle, and I'm not sure it's going to be for the same reasons as the first time. That's all done. The first show was great. Whatever happened to it, somebody, somebody's enjoying it. We, we have no Somebody idea. 30 years from now is going to watch that show and go, aha. Uh, they said it was good, but we didn't realize it was that damn good. <laughs> so, Billy, let, let, let's, let's enlighten the people. You know, you've had such a, a marvelous and a far-reaching career, not only in the ring, but outside the ring. You know, let's take us, take kind of take us back to those, to little Billy DeMott and up and up and when you first started training, I think it was a great, uh, like Johnny Ross, right? Yeah. And tell us some of those stories and some of those characters that you were associated with when, when you first got into that and what made you go there. So take us, take it, take it away. Okay. 
Well, I, I was, uh, I think unlike a lot of, a lot of guys, especially you two men, I wasn't, I was more of a casual fan of wrestling. Like I grew up in New Jersey and at that time there was, you know, four stations, there was no cable, but one of the stations that came on was MSG every Saturday night. So we'd watch the garden. So my grandfather always had Pedro Morales. They had a woman's match and then they had the midgets. So, you know, every Saturday night with my grandfather, we'd watch wrestling. So I was a casual fan. Fast forward to, you know, playing a little football in high school, got a chance to go play in college. Um, I realized that you didn't just play football in college. They expected you to get an education. Uh, I fell short of that part of it. So I was. I think I, think I, I can join you on that one. Yeah, I think I was the only guy to have a negative grade point average. And they told me they'd give me straight zeros if I promised not to come back my sophomore year. So I said, deal. So I, I still have a, a positive grade point average. Uh, but my, my, my dad, you know, at the time I, I started to be a, a big boned kid and, and my dad didn't, he just couldn't see the, the sense in sitting around being some kind of athlete, just working a regular job and stuff like that. So he brought me into this gym in Brooklyn where he grew up and, uh, it wound up being, you know, Johnny Rods. Uh, it wasn't Front Street. He had two gyms at the time. So he's bouncing back and forth from your side of Brooklyn and um, brought me into the gym. And, and I was introduced to, like, the behind the scenes of these. I walked in and there was all these cats, you know, throwing each other around and doing all this stuff. And uh, the long and short of it is, you know, Johnny came over, introduced himself, and told me I could sit there and watch anytime I want. No, it's not. It's not for everybody. He for sure didn't think it was something that I could do. What was your size then, Bill? Well, I probably six one, three and a quarter. Wow. Good lord. And uh, <laughs> and I mean, just looked me up and down and looked at my dad. You can watch. This isn't for you. And was, your dad, there. was your dad a big man? No, no, he wasn't. He was a, uh, you know, like I say, he's a normal, normal sized dad. You know. But we we just uh, I think the mailman was big, so I, I <laughs> still question at fifty six. I still look at my mom sometimes a little shady. Um, How old were you then? We were three and a, three and three and a quarter. Uh, I had to be just about 21, 22. Good grief! Yeah, I uh, when I fit, and the funny part was I graduated high school one eighty five. I was an outside linebacker and between graduating high school and my sophomore year in college, I gained over a hundred pounds, but I started lifting weights. I, you know, I started, you know, in football, John, as you know, I mean, we, I went to school in Pennsylvania. You were eating six times a day. Yeah. And we never did that from, so, you know, started training and eating and all these things. So when I came home like within a year and a half i i gained over 100 pounds and it was i did the same thing i did almost the same thing i was 190 when i graduated in my my red shirt freshman year when i first played and started i was 265 270 just and you come home and your parents are going what what happened to you <laughs> right nothing fit but yeah <laughs> my book my you know i feel pretty good and i you know and it's uh, just the opposite with me i graduated about 180 
about well, no, I'm sorry, I graduated I about 165, wrestled 57 that year. And a wrestling coach signed me at a 67 pounder. I showed up at, at Oklahoma State at 200 pounds <laughs> from a from senior year to sophomore, freshman year. And it was the same look, right? Yeah, what happened same, to you? Yeah, same look. Yeah, I signed you as a 57 pounder. Well, <laughs> yeah, one, like one thing, Bill, one time I was working in Japan, they brought over Buddy Landell. And uh, Kendo Nagasaki, Mr. Yeah. Sakamoto, was the boss. Well, Buddy had that, you know, that jacked up photo. Well, when he showed up, <laughs> Kendo literally said the th- same thing. He goes, what happened? <laughs> Buddy had been on a few picnics. Buddy, Buddy weighed the same. It was just proportioned completely different. <laughs> what happened? What, what happened to you? <laughs> what did you play in football? Well, I'm sorry? You play outside linebacker? Did you play outside? Yeah, linebacker? I played. I played outside linebacker, and uh, believe it or not, I had I had a couple of plays my freshman year in college at fullback, which was I thought was cool, <laughs> but I was I didn't have a mind for offense, and I uh, William Perry in college. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I was <laughs> legitimately. But those boys in in Pennsylvania, they were all. My, I was like the, uh, you know, the mutt of the litter. They some of these guys were. Giant, giant guys. I was like, what the? I'm not in New Jersey anymore. Um, yeah, so, so we went. And so when we left the gym that day, I, I told my dad, I said, you know, who who is that guy? And why, you know, what makes him think he can talk to me like that? Like, I was, I was like, pissed. Like, this guy didn't even know me. He's telling me I can't do this thing. So I, I, I told my dad on the ride, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do the old uh, beg, borrow, steal. And get enough money to go back. And I went back a week later and handed him thirty five hundred dollars in cash. Wow. And he looked at me like. Who's what? Who's this guy? So and then I was there eight days a week, 48 hours a day after I just was instantly, instantly hooked on the the physical part of it. And then Johnny, you know, Johnny took me to task. I mean, he just stretched me every day and introduced me to the mental game of it, you know, and the the rest is, you know, 30 years of. Uh, did did Johnny ever trouble. tell you why he said that you weren't going to make it? Yeah, because he, he figured that was the if, if I was going to come back, that was the reason why. So that was his that was he probably told a lot of people that. I was there sense. after when he said that to certain guys and I was like, Oh, okay. And, and that gym was part boxing gym, right? It was. And that's where my dad brought me. He thought he was bringing me to a boxing gym. <laughs> so your dad because, wanted to be a boxer. Yeah. Because he boxed in the air force <laughs> and he boxed growing up. And you know, back then the, that YMCA was really big. So they'd go to the Y and they'd box. Well, he brought me to the boxing gym. But in turn, we wound up watching wrestling. So, but when, and the funny part is when he found out what I actually spent the $3,500 on, he thought I was nuts. He's like, you've got to be crazy. So but, even when you had the 3500 he didn't know that you were going to sign up. He thought you were signing up for boxing lessons. He, my dad knew for sure that I was going to go become a boxer. And and he, you know, as my dad got older, he told he told the story all the time. He goes, I would have never taken him to that gym if I knew this is what he was going to do. And it was, you know, and then the rest was just uh, luck of the draw. 
As, as you were going along there, they had a lot of great stars. Johnny just produced star after star there for a while there. Uh, were there other guys at, at, in your classes that that eventually became? Uh, yeah, the the so the the one there was two cats that stood out. They were they, were, they had a twin brothers that were big. They were they were John size. They were you know they were big men. They were twins. Um, but then there was uh, Damien Demento who was there. And Taz. And then there was a couple other, you know, like I say, journeymen, guys that had been there for a while. But Taz and Taz and Phil Damien were there. They'd been there about a year. And then what it, what was happening as he was as Johnny moved over to the Gleason's part full time. So after so it was Taz and, and Damien first, then it was me. And then somewhere along the line became the Dudleys, came uh Rocco and Grunge came uh, Big Vito. Uh, and then as, as time went on, more guys kept going into Johnny now and then, you know, uh, working out. But there was, you know, you, I always look back and, you know, offline we were talking about Dreamer. But you look at the guys that Johnny had back then and what he taught us, I felt, taught us more than just, just you know, the wrestling business. He tried to teach us about the business. And I feel like Taz is a success story. After his ring career, look what he's done, Tommy. And not that I put myself in their league, but look what we've done in a 30-year career as opposed to maybe, if you're lucky, 10 or 12 years just wrestling, you know, um, right. doing it. But Johnny really put you through your paces. And uh, um, uh, I think he's still 39. I know he's still in Gleason's. He still tells everybody on his birthday he's 39. He still, <laughs> he still gets in the ring and stretches somebody. Does he really? Oh, it, now, but now last time I spoke to his wife, he still goes in there, but then no one sees him for two weeks after that. <laughs> you know, uh, Johnny was the guy that Pat Patterson beat in the Rio de Janeiro tournament for the Intercontinental Champion. <laughs> yeah, I, I quoted that one time because I looked it up and that's what they said initially was they beat, he beat Johnny Rods in, in uh, you know, down in Rio de Janeiro in this fictional tournament. I said that one time and Vince was, where'd you come up with that? <laughs> from you it's a, yeah it's in the books yeah when we when so back then there was no you know google no internet things like that so i went and signed up to have this guy train me and i had no idea who he was i just knew he was a coach that looked me down i said this is not for you so you had to go to the the library to get tapes and this is even before the tapes were a big deal and so you started doing your homework on them and then like he had my attention you come to realize like that he was one of Vince Senior's guys. Like everybody yeah, went oh, to yeah. Johnny to get a job. Him and uh, Jose Estrada and guys like that. And so it became, you know, what Johnny said was law, and that's the way we did it. <laughs> yeah, Vince uh, thought the world of Johnny. Yeah, Bill, Bill, uh, you said he was Vince Senior's guy. When when Vince Senior had a guy, he went broken in. Was was Johnny the guy that Vince Senior sent him? John, Johnny was, was like a feeding guy. Yeah, Johnny Johnny was the guy that put him through their paces. Um, and I know him and Estrada were the guys that th they would say, okay, take see what they got, put them through it. And uh, and then you know, Johnny would put him through it and then slip on the banana peel for him. And and uh that's how that's how a lot of guys got their jobs. Uh Piper used to tell the, the story about Johnny in California, the Jabaruk character, and how Johnny helped Piper early on, and it's just 
to find out, you know, like I thought he was cool because he's my coach. And I thought, you know, he's a legitimate, you know, badass. And, but to find out what he, what he's done in the business, then, you know, the hall of fame and, and all that stuff. So I, I've taken every, I think my biggest downfall is I've taken everything Johnny taught me and I brought it forward to the way that I was training guys. And then, you know, as we're in this new uh, society, you can't do that, but I still did it. Yeah. Well, I just saw Rip Rogers this past the Oh my gosh. And uh, you know, I love Rip. We were talking about him last week with Gail Kim and she was saying, I don't, I don't think he could probably do that today. I said, I can tell you right now, he couldn't do that today. (laughs) And he's so funny when he tries to, he tries not to be himself. It's great. But Rip is just one of those. He is who he is. And he, and that's, that's the way he knows, and it's going to stay that way forever. And he's, and you I know think what? it works. <laughs> yeah. And it, and that's the thing. It works. So, you know, but he, that's the way he taught me. And I, I, I just, it worked. And I watched his success and, and everything. Like, there, there, other than a little bit of luck, there had to be a reason why we were all progressing in the business. And, and it's, you know, you know, one of the differences, Bill, is that you found out right away whether the guys were going to make it or not. Yeah. Like occasionally guys would go ahead and get in the business and they might falter later. But now, because you don't have that hard training, and I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying right, that, right. How, how the end result happens. And because you don't have that hard training, now they get in the business and think, I really don't want to do this. Before you found out during training. Yeah. And Before now you people- find out six months into the, to them trying to become a wrestler that, you know what, this isn't for me. Yeah. After you've made a big investment in them and, and things like that. And, and I'm not a big fan of uh, I'll say I'm not a big fan of what I've what I've been accused of doing, you know, but I'm a big fan of that hard work and OK, work for it. But you, you both know, Mr. Briscoe, you more than anybody, the 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 opportunities are so more in front of them, they don't have to appreciate it or work. For it, you know that that whole paying your dues thing is, I think, is way out the window, and and earning your stripes. But I think there's still parts of it that work today, and, and if you know, there's still room to bring it back, and then try to still make people feel feel very good about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I, I you know, I think it's just it's such BS. Yeah, you're accused of. I mean, absolute BS. It's just. And then one of the problems was you never came out and told your side of the story. So people just went with this, whatever story yeah. you wanted and expanded it and made it into this incredible, absolute bullshit. Then people that didn't hear about it, you know, how the internet grows, but I just, yeah. I just hated it for you because it's, it's BS. The whole bullshit is what yeah. the, well, the whole, when the whole thing started, like I, I started, I've been very fortunate my whole career. I've had a lot of men and women that have, have, are very successful, give me advice and teach me things. And I, I wanted to listen. It goes back to that drive in the car with the veterans and just shut up and listen. You know, J.J. Dillon told me one time, he goes, there's going to be a time in your career, if you're lucky, that you're going to have a bullseye on your back. And he goes, when that bullseye is there, you're done. Don't take it personally. Fast forward after WCW, like all, all of my uh, my reputation grew after tough enough because that's what people saw on tv so that's who you were so people that were trying to get in the business who ran into bill demont they pointed to that guy when the you know when the red light was on and that was cool and and so the first time i was done 
with the company in 04 after Deep South, I went about my business. I didn't argue the point because I feel like you put, you're adding fuel to the fire. So as long as my wife was good, my kids were good, and I was good with you know, what we did, we, we left it alone. Come back to WWE again after Tough Enough and fortunate, you know, I moved up in the, the ranks a little bit and became the head trainer and all those things. But all, all those, all those, uh, all those stories and accusations were always told about somebody telling about something that happened to somebody else. It wasn't what happened to them. I saw this and I saw that and I saw that. And I'm a firm believer. If you if you saw it, report it, but have your have your ducks in a row. And every time it was brought up, there was there you know it was looked into, and nothing came of it. But by the time it gets to social media, now you're in the court of public opinion. It's a publicly traded company, and I really had an option, and I had a couple of opportunities. People call and go, "We are ready for this side of the story. What do you want to do?" And I'm like. There's, there's no side. I'm not putting, uh, we, we've all, and, and we've all, and I'm not lumping you into my story, but everything we've done in our careers, we've done for a reason. And we, you know, we've tried to do it the right way. And I feel like I helped build that NXT alongside, you know, Triple H under his, you know, guidance. And so why would I come out and then try to tear it down when it's just reaching what would you know later be the the unbelievable brand? But that was that was my feeling on it, and I knew everything that was going on. I mean, there was a few people in the office that could have uh, stepped up for me and said, you know, we've done this. But uh, some at the time, someone had to fall on the sword. I knew it was me, and there we go. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you are at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead, or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? So if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we got a special order deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code JBLGB. That's JBLGB at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. The bluechew.com promo code JBLGB to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. 
you the know, thing it, about it is, Bill, you know, all of us, I mean, we're, we're a college athlete, John and I were both college athletes. We've had coaches that that's the way we were taught. I mean, that's yeah. the way we were coached. And we didn't think any difference of it. You know, our damn coach grab you by the face mask, shake your oh, head yeah. around, slap you up the side of the head three or four times until you get your ass back out there, you know? And we accepted it. I mean, that, that, that was our, our, our way of training. That was our way of learning stuff. So, you know, a lot of that stuff, it's just a different generation of athlete coming along. And I'm not even, I don't even know if I can lump some of those people in like that, 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 that and classify them as athletes, just, right. just a, a body wanting to wanting the inside of the business, you know? Yeah. So, you know, when I heard it, I'm, of course, you know, we're all on your side because we all brought up like that. <laughs> you and know and it, the terrible thing is, is that I'm a firm believer, and I, and I mean this, I'm a firm believer if something's happening to you and you're uncomfortable, come, you come to the head coach, you come to someone, discuss it then. If you're waiting to see how far you go in the company and then wait and go back because you've been released or you've asked for your release or whatever the case is, once you're no longer with the company and you come out with all this negative stuff, I still don't know why we, we hold on to that, but that's just the, that's, that's just the, the, kind of, that's just yeah. the, the place we're in. It's amazing, Bill. Once, once they don't make the company because of their own merit, because either their lack yeah. of talent or lack of commitment, they got to find somebody to blame. So they yeah. go back and say, you know, this is what happened to me. That's why I'm not there. No, you're not there. Cause you got no talent. Yeah. Or not enough talent to make it, whatever that is that talent threshold level is people look for somebody to blame. And yeah, I've been the same way. I mean, yeah, I can go out and I can correct a lot of things that are out there. A lot of things. Cause some of them are just blatantly false. <laughs> I mean, blatantly false. You know, you know, you know how it is. I mean, a hundred percent wrong. But if I spend that time to do that and I change the minds of a few people that I right. don't know tomorrow morning, when I get up, if they think something good of me as compared to thinking something bad of me, it doesn't change my life one bit. Yeah. I'm just wasted today trying to correct something for people that I don't know. Right. And to me, it was just, I just never found it interesting or cared enough to go about and say, you know what? This is wrong. This is wrong. This didn't happen. You know, so what? If you want to think that, yeah, feel free. And it, yeah, it was always, uh, you know, I, I put everything, uh, I say this the Miz came through me. The Miz will tell you it was tough. He was tough. This is what he expected every day. I'm sorry. I feel like that guy's probably one of the most successful cats around. And he had opportunities to, he could have quit. He could have done all these things, but you knew what he was there for. And he took it. And yeah, I'm okay with people saying, man, Demont expected too much from me. But some of the stuff, like you weren't even around me, and people can just, as you know, jump on social media and repeat something or hear something, and that's the gospel. Like I'm, I heard names I even, I've never even met in thirty years. So <laughs> I just looked at it as, okay, it's it's that it's that season again, and uh, as, as you know, unfortunately for me at that time, that's when everything happened in my life personally. So it was almost like, uh, you know. Uh, a little bit of a blessing, but I still, I'm still that guy who watches. I still talk to all the guys and girls that are doing good and you see them and, you know, somebody will shoot you a thing, go, what'd you think of that? And I'll go, well, the shits, but <laughs> you, you know what, you know, when they ask me, like people are, you know, as you guys know, coach, 
they send you a YouTube video or they send you this or would you watch that? Or it's just that friendly, hey, man, thinking of you and thanks for that time we did this. I'll take those all day long and I can leave the tweets and stuff alone. I don't really. <laughs> I, like you said, John, I don't have time or energy for that stuff. It's, no. There's too and much look, going you on. At, you look at it, your contemporaries love you. Yeah. You know, it, it's the guys that were there with you. They yeah. love you. And, and I've always looked at it that way. I, I, hopefully, I haven't heard it or seen it yet. But every time I run into the boys, it's nothing but camaraderie and, and laughs and, you know, being mad together at the same story. But there was never that thing. And I always looked at it well. It wasn't from the locker room. It wasn't from, you know, the, the cats that I got to dance with. Um, it was from people who were trying to make it. And I and while I get it, I don't have the energy to to put into that. Now, if Mr. Briscoe would have called me and went, A, B, C, and D, you're wrong, this, 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 I would have sat up straight and went, wow. But. Well, like I and, said, that's how I was brought up. So I saw A, B, C, and D was right. <laughs> and, and, and you know, you you both know the, the ones that, and it's hard to be, if you don't come from, I think, a sports background or being coached in something, a lot of those cats had the opportunity to come into a, a world-renowned center and think they made it. And they, you know, you still, no matter what anybody says, I say publicly to be correct, all the all the the people that have gone through this business and survived it and have knowledge that's who I go to that's who I rely on and if, if I'm told I'm wrong then I had Dusty with me seven days a week by my side and if Dusty would have said bullfin this is wrong then we would have changed it so you know you mentioned the Miz the Miz to me is one of the great stories in this business uh you know unbelievable I, man. and that's not I, I I took credit for locking him out of the locker room I had nothing to do with it I took credit storyline wise so people <laughs> to this day think I was the one because storyline wise I took I had nothing I wasn't even there right you know he was eating chicken over Scott Armstrong's bag up reportedly was what it was and I don't, I don't I, you know Bob Holiday or somebody threw him out but it, to <laughs> me it's it was amazing the Miz he has no background in this business. Obviously, I think he was a fan. I don't know, but he's right. a very smart guy. But you come off tough enough. And the problem with tough enough to me was that you get all of this TV exposure. You get millions of dollars of exposure. You've never had a match. Right. And then all of a sudden they go, okay, we got to put this person in the ring. There's almost no chance for success with that. Yeah. So you got like John Morrison or The Miz. I mean, that, that, it's amazing to, for them to have to come through that and make it to where they are. But I think those are the guys who really, they got into tough enough as a way into the business. A lot of them got on tough enough because they were seen or they had a certain look, you know, or, or, or whatever the case was, but there was a bunch who got into it because they were fans and saw an opportunity to do it. But look at the work they put in. I mean, Maven, who I get along famously with Maven, but Maven was that guy in the first one shoved into it and tons of opportunities put in front of him, but push came to shove. And, you know, if it, if it was going to be seven days a week for 300 days a year, it just wasn't a fit. You know, I mean, cheesy threw Taker out of the ring. What was it, the rumble? Right. I mean, right. And so those opportunities aren't given to everyone, but then do you know what to do with those opportunities? So I, to me, Miz is the, is the poster boy for everything that Tough Enough ever did. And yeah. Miz, I mean, wow. I, you know, we're really on to something with, with Miz. 
uh, he had to fight so much, so many obstacles. And Miz, you know, when he came to came to the main roster, he wasn't the most likable guy in right. the world. And and he 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 admitted admits that, you know, because he wasn't a likable person. He wasn't that outgoing guy, yeah. you know, that outgoing athlete. He had to overcome so much. And to me, he's overcome every every yeah. obstacle every, everybody threw in his way. And it's just and I think it's the dedication to the business, which you know, a lot of people didn't see that. And perhaps you saw it when you were training him that this guy wanted to learn our business. But the more you're around him is, the more you found out that he had that sponge in his head wanting to absorb yeah. this business, wanting to learn every side of it. And I think that's really what kind of pushed him yeah. even ahead of a more talented athletic partner at Morrison and, and pushed yeah. him on up there because of his desire to learn. And a lot of it, I think, came from, you know, going back to John when he was ousted out of the locker room. He could have really been negative about that, but he – I mean, he just kind of deciphered it. Okay, why am I getting thrown out? What are they looking for? Who, you know, how do I fit in here? And that was, that's the thing that I, I feel like you try to teach these guys coming up. And that was kind of the thing was make it through the developmental. So when you get to the main roster, you're prepared. Not sit and, you know, punch the clock in developmental and then try to figure out why you have a job, you don't have a job after three months of all that investment. So I think Miz really learned his lessons. And while he could have been really negative and sour about it, he's, you know, he had something to prove because there's something he wanted to do. And, and I think when it got hard, he knuckled up. And um, I, I think he's one of the top, top guys in the company. And I mean, look at the media, everything he does media wise, look at, he's built his brand so strong now over the past so many years. And this is when people thought he was a reality TV kid and he wouldn't last six months and he's got a great career. And you look at how hard he works. I mean, you look at how hard, how hard Cena works or the rock, you know, I I talked to some guys that, you know, said, Hey, I I know how the rock made it. He worked that hard. I didn't want to work that hard, you know, and there's levels of success and that's that matter to you. Miz is 24 seven, you know, just like Cena was, especially when he was uh, with WWE and still and and doing all the movies and everything else. I mean, it is an incredible work schedule that most people just simply don't realize. He has no time for himself. Yeah. And now with kids and and he still keeps his calendar full and he's always there. And I, I mean, to me, everybody coming in, no matter what they may think of him or who his characters on TV, everybody coming in should have to study him top to bottom to see what it is to make it in the company. There's it's there's 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 a reason why he's been there that long. Yeah, and continues to reinvent himself. Yeah, you know that's just that's just simply hard work. Yeah. Bill, Bill, let's let's uh, let's slide back a little bit. Uh, let's go back to your training and, and and as as you're getting out of the training, was Johnny telling you that you had a, a future that he could get you booked anywhere? How was you exploring the the outside <laughs> of that training center? John, Johnny kind of put me into, um. I, I say he fast tracked me because he, you know, there was three, three, four months before I even hit the ropes. I wasn't even allowed in the ring. Everything I did was on the floor. And usually it was with Johnny trying to choke me out or something, put me in something because every, he, he let me know everything could be the last thing he does to me. You know, it goes back to like when Hogan got his leg broken. Well, I had, you know, I was six, one, three and a quarter. And I got this guy hanging on me and I can't shake him. And, you know, 
but he started to put me in front of people that he knew, especially in the Northeast. So he started, he started booking me on shows and all I knew how to do was hit the ropes. I couldn't do a tackle. I didn't know what a drop down was anything because he just wanted to put me out there. And then one time he sent us to Vince in Connecticut and we had to report to Pat. I'm sitting there as his goofy kid. And I'm going, it's Pat Patterson. Ooh. And Chief was there and everybody's walking around. So here's me and Damien Demento, two jacked up. We're bald. We got mohawks and everybody's looking at us like we're two jabronis. And Chief goes, hey, you got black trunks. I need someone to put over my kid. And I was just shocked he was talking to me. I never even answered. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to bump in front of an arena full of people. I don't even know how to bump right, you know. But Johnny always kept putting me. But when I came back, I realized I didn't know what they were doing. So I came back for more. Like, And then he he knew what he was doing with me. He made me ask questions. And then he showed me what I asked him. Instead of just coming in every day and waiting to be shown something, I was asking for more. And so every time there was an opportunity, he put me in front of someone. And then uh, shortly after uh, Hercules Ayala came to uh, Brooklyn looking for bodies for Puerto Rico for two weeks of TV to run opposition, Johnny said, take him. So Phil and I were set to go to Puerto Rico. I got on a plane, landed in Puerto Rico. Uh, Phil got on a plane and landed in Florida for Eddie Mansfield. And I didn't know where my partner was. So now, now I'm a tag team guy with no partner wow. in Puerto Rico. I don't speak Spanish. I barely know how to lace my boots. But they just kept putting me in front of me. And there was Jose Estrada. So having Jose with me every day was the same as having Johnny. And, you know, they talked. And Jose put me through my paces. Were you running opposition against Carlos? Yeah, that's when they first started doing it. I think it was all-star wrestling back in. So that might have yep. been. 90, 90, 91, something like that. And so all the guys started, Savio started jumping and Hurricane Castillo, everybody was coming over. Um, so I just, that's why I started making my bones down there. And I wound up there for three years straight. I was supposed to go for two weeks and, you know, Johnny, I, I, I didn't go home for three years. And the one time I went home, he goes, where you been? Huh. Like, how come you haven't been in school? I'm like, cause you, you sent me to, <laughs> you sent me to Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> for two weeks and I've been there for three years yeah <laughs> so but yeah he he stays in my mind uh a lot of it and and like I feel like uh, you you both been coached and you both coached and the whole thing was like life including in wrestling like handle yourself the right way and and you know perception and all those things but yeah Johnny had a huge impact on me uh even when I WCW and all those things. I always went back to what I was, what I was coached to do. So, uh, you know, I always, cause you know, I've worked a lot with, you know, at-risk kids at different places around the world. And I always say, if you want to tell how good a coach is, look, look at the, look at the person 30 years from now. Yeah. You know, don't, don't look at the win loss record. Don't look yep. at all Americans, the all States, look at this person 30 years from now. Do they have a good family? Are they a good citizen? Are they doing good things in life? Yep. That's how you measure a coach. Because you 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 can be financially successful for a short amount of time and then be miserable and you know not really uh, I guess productive in society or whatever. But uh, yeah, it, so it was a 
it was interesting how it happened. I always said I was always in the right place at the right time. Like I never went and I was told early on, sit down, shut up, listen. And so I'd always be sitting down and, and the, the least busy in these locker rooms we were in. And I was always the one who had the opportunity. So I, I figured that kept, that kept working for me. So I, I rode that out for as long as I could. Hey, Bill, you know, since you're the only uh, superstar important enough for us to interview twice, <laughs> uh, I, I happen to remember from the first show, you told a wonderful story because Gleason's gym was one of the most famous boxing gyms in the world. Yes. The Mitch Blood Green Mike Tyson story. This was a, this is a legendary story. We we come out of so at the time you came out of the old Gleason's now it's redone and you'd come out and you'd have to make a left to go and there was a like a a snack shop on the corner. So everybody from the boxing gym and from the wrestling gym, everybody ate in between there. So if you were training all day, you had an hour off or whatever. And so everybody was, and there's boxers, trainers, there's uh, movie stars always around because everybody was shooting always something in Brooklyn. Well, the one time they come out and Tyson was there and Mitch Green comes out of the, out of the store, like, and he got in Tyson's face and Tyson had a couple of his people. And the next thing you know, Mitch Blood Green is on the ground. And we're like, you know, and, and we're sitting there and we're big on tank tops and jacked up wrestlers and all these things. And we're training hard. And Tyson, boom, boom. And Green, who was no, no little guy. Oh, he was a tough guy. Down he went in the middle of the street on Front Street. And we all just did this. And then Tyson, like nothing, he went about his business and went back up to the gym. And and Mitch Green, he, boy, he talked a good game. And in, in two seconds, he was down. Wow. And the papers were on it. And we sat there and, like, that's when you realize, you know, because I wasn't a, a big boxing fan, but I knew who Mike Tyson was. And then I saw it in person. I was like. And we just, like, Sam Jackson was there. They all used to come, Samuel L. Jackson, and these people – come to the store when they were just and you'd be like Lewis Gossett Jr. was filming a movie even I think Lewis Gossett Jr. was there the day uh Tyson knocked Green out on Front Street and it was just to me I was like in heaven this is just the coolest thing I'm wrestling I'm watching athletes I'm watching people get decked on the thing <laughs> I go and get a muffin and a cold drink I mean this is great hey the picture of Mitch Blood Green after that was unbelievable it looked like he'd been hit with a truck and and the I feel like the the uh, the one paper was there in like thirty seconds, so I almost feel like it was uh, supposed to be a staged thing, you know, where you know a little Bach build up the thing, but he came out of the thing, and, and uh, bam, 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 Tyson quiet and his two guys, and with it, bah, bah, and that was it. He was. If like, it was staged, somebody forgot to smarten up. My well, <laughs> uh, yeah, unless they told him wait for the papers or something, but he. I mean, he literally did what he had to do, and he just went back into Gleason's gym, and the store, everybody was up in arms, and there's, oh, it was great. Where did Tyson go after that? He went up to the gym to go train. Oh, really? So he just he just left uh, Mitch Green on, on the. They didn't even they didn't even like stand over him and talk junk or anything. He said he got in Tyson's face with his guys. Da da. Tyson just went about his business, and I'm like. If that's a work, that's the best thing because he hammered him. And wow. he never he but he never turned around. 
And the guy oh. who owned Gleason's would always introduce us to all those guys. And I, I was afraid to go, yeah, I watched you get your ass kicked on the street. <laughs> hey, Bill, how, how was the relationship with the boxers, wrestlers? I mean, it's tight gym there. And uh, you, had, you guys had to rub elbows and somewhere along the line. Yeah, we, we didn't use their, we didn't use their locker rooms because that was just a hungry group, group of cats that were there training all the time. Um, but they would stop by and watch us because we trained in a boxing ring. It had four ropes. It was this high off the ground and you might as well have been training on I four in, in Orlando. Um, but they, it was a good relationship. And then every once in a while, the trainers would come over and take us to the bags and show us different footwork and stuff. So there was, oh, there was always people like it was a good relationship. And then sometimes they needed the ring and we'd have to sit there and just wait. But, uh, how, how often was uh, Tyson there? Was that the only time that he was there just during that time? Or who's yeah, once or twice he was there. Um, and that was the that was the place where they'd all come in. Ira it was the, the, the owner's name at the time. And maybe once a week there'd be someone coming in and they'd do a photo shoot. There was that place was always being rented out for photo shoots and stuff. So you always saw these up and coming boxers, and then you saw like the legends would come in, like uh Hagler. And, and guys who would stop in to see the one trainer or, you know, they were in the area and they always stopped by. And I was like, I haven't seen any wrestlers come in, but I saw a, a buttload of boxers and I thought it was pretty cool. That's awesome. <laughs> so and it was awesome. even funnier because I go and tell my dad about these guys because he grew up with boxing. And, and I think that just needled him more because he thought he was taking me to a boxing gym. <laughs> like I'm, home, I'm coming home and telling them boxing stories, no wrestling stories. <laughs> By now, you know that everything is crazy overseas and well, that's created some volatility in the market. We actually saw rates tick down a little bit this week. We don't know how long it'll stay that way. All the experts are predicting that there is going to be a rate hike this month in the month of March. Some are saying 25 basis points. Others are saying 50. What does that mean? It means waiting will cost you money. And by the way, I want to mention, this is still a once in a lifetime opportunity, just based on your real estate values. You see all of a sudden your house is worth considerably more than it was just a couple of years ago. And as a result, you can use that newfound equity to change your life. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners take their 30 year loan and pay it off in half the time. And how can they afford to do that without their payments going sky high? We get rid of all their other debt. And I mean it as a heads up, what would you do? you had no credit card debt. Just like that, it was all paid off. How much easier would life be if those car payments, whoop, they're out of here, no more car payments. That is the story that we're able to help our friends and family with at SaveWithConrad.com. You see, the interest you pay on your credit cards, not tax deductible, and sky high. The interest you pay on your car loans. Buddy, where is that going? What if we could restructure all of your debt use some of this newfound equity and at the same time, get you out of debt faster. You see what we're talking about is reducing the time on your mortgage. Yes, we're going to get you a great rate, but if you're in a 30 year loan, think about what your life looks like 30 years from now, man, life gets a lot easier when you're completely debt free. And that's what we want to help you do. And by the way, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And oh, as a heads up, if you've been thinking, Hey man, I like my house, but my kitchen's kind of outdated. What if we could get you the cash you need to turn your average kitchen into something your wife loves and it wouldn't change your monthly payment at all? Why wouldn't you do that? 
You see, you'd be reinvesting back in your own property. That's going to make your house worth even more. And oh yeah, you can do it with cheaper monthly payments at SaveWithConrad.com. Now I know it sounds too good to be true, but I want you to go check out our reviews for yourself. See what some of our new family members are saying at ConradReviews.com. You'll see there we've got over a thousand verified reviews. Our average rating is 4.72. And if we were a restaurant with a thousand reviews and a 4.72 rating, I know where you're eating dinner and I know where you need to do your next loan. It's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? That's SaveWithConrad.com. So after you go to Puerto Rico, that's where you end up staying there for three years. Yeah, we, so we were there for two, they said, be there for two weeks. They're going to shoot enough TVs to start running. And then they would figure it out. Uh, the lady at the time had the money. She was backing it. And then they said, would you stay one more week? Would you stay one more week? And before I knew it, they had me in a condo on the beach, like 10 feet off the beach. And one week turned into another. Uh, Tom Brandy was down there. Uh, Sal Sincere, right? Yeah. Uh I'm trying to think. Uh, whatever happened to Sal? Whatever happened to Sal Sincere? He had such a great look. Good look. Yeah, he's black, a, great body. Uh, he coached his son for a while back at football and stuff in Pennsylvania. He's still he's still out doing stuff, you know. So I I think he's uh, enjoying that part of it. He's still out there doing some independent shots, but yeah. as he had his family and everything, I think he kind of just got away from it. But he, he had a great look, and he was a. He was a good-looking guy. I mean, I made sure in Puerto Rico I stayed by him all the time because everybody wanted to use a good-looking cat. But, yeah, it turned into Gangrel, and, Gangrel and, and Luna. We all lived together for a long time. Holy cow. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the, the guys and girls that I lived with in that time, I mean, Manny Fernandez lived with me. Uh, oh, my Billy God. Bill Travis was there. Uh, and it, they just kept cutting. So people were filtering in and I wound up being the constant. And all of a sudden I was like there for three years. Um, so Brandy got called to WCW and I'm like, now I'm by myself. Now I'm like going crazy. Now I realize I've been there three years, but we're, we're working like four and five nights a year, uh, four and five nights a, a week. Um, but at that time I, I got to go home. So I was about to go home and I got stopped at a, at uh, one of those pincho shacks on the beach, and it was uh, Miguel Perez. Yeah, and asked me if I wanted to go to Japan. I'm like, I, I gotta go home. Well, I did was go home and change my clothes because I left uh, the week later for Japan. I wound up doing that for three years, so I, <laughs> I really didn't go home. Uh, it just, yeah, I just was always in the right place, and someone always, uh, I think had at least something positive about what I was doing. And they said, Hey, bring him here, bring him there. And, uh, when so you just, start figuring out that you could do all this stuff off the top rope. It, but when I went to Japan, because the, the, the company I worked for was wing, which yeah, was uh, a yeah. branched off of, um, Godo and those guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember it well because I was working for a small group uh, in Japan that, then as well for Kendo Nagasaki. Who had, yeah. Who yeah. Had, so we had split from uh, Tinder. Yep. Yep. Tinder split from Anokia and then right. uh, they all split from all split Japan. From... And yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we, as they were doing things, some of the Mexican boys would come over and Estrada was working over there and he said, Hey, can you do that? And it was running up to the top rope and just standing there. 
So for hours every day, he taught me how to just run the no hands, go to the top rope, and then just jump and do what he can do and do these things. And can you do that? And it just became that's the way you pass time. Because you know, you're there for five weeks for the love of Pete. You can't sit in a room or on your bus. And I just wanted to learn. I just wanted, like I saw Vader jump off the top rope that way, but everybody went crazy because he was a giant man who tried to go backwards. Right. And so I saw Muda do it, and then I saw Bigelow do it. I'm like, well, I'm as big as Bigelow. I said, let me try it. And you know, one yeah, thing Vader's that Vader's moonsault was a little bit cross eyed. It was, yeah, it was almost like he knew he was slipping and he was grabbing for the other rope. That's right. It was kind of, I'm going to turn and throw my legs around. And he still landed on you just as hard. Oh, my goodness. He'd kill you. I told, years later, we'd, we'd get to coach together in Tampa, and I told him one time, like, I'm so glad I was never underneath anything you tried to do. <laughs> he just laughed at me because uh, we were training his boy at the time, Jesse, and uh, we were laughing about it, but. Yeah, that stuff I wanted to because it wasn't being done by bigger guys, you know. And then they had the headhunters over there, and they were those twins. They were oh they yeah, were the size of Abby for crying out loud. And they were doing it, and people were going crazy. I'm like, I I can, I think I can get that same reaction. So, was yeah, Japan were, the first try at the time that you successfully landed it? I I actually did it in the pool of Puerto Rico on a day off. Just from the thing, and Kevin Sullivan told me that if I didn't do it in Japan, I'd never work there again. And so I fought him on it, and we waited till the last day. Is always the big show of the tour, right. and he goes, "Tonight's the night." And I'm like, "I'm not doing." It. He goes, "Pack your stuff and get out of here." <laughs> and I was like, I, I felt like a kid. I was like, "Come on, man, don't make me do that in front of like it's a full arena. Do it or leave." And so when the time was right, I uh, I went up and closed my eyes and jumped. Who was Next, the victim? Uh, it was one of the headhunters. <laughs> and I guarantee you never you didn't tell him you'd never done it before. Uh, well, they all knew. Everybody knew. Oh, well, they knew <laughs> you hadn't done it. They all knew because they've been with me. They know this. And he's still laid there. And because Mr. Pogo was my partner, and Pogo threatened him that if he got up and moved, Pogo would beat him up. <laughs> and he would. And which is funny because Pogo talked like this, and I couldn't take anything he said seriously. So <laughs> but when I shut my eyes and jumped, and when I landed, it was so bright. I thought, uh-oh, I did something. But it was all the cameras going, this fat kid just jumped in the air 15 feet, you know. And then they said, that's every night now. you got to do that. So, Did you get where you felt comfortable doing it? Uh, yeah. I uh, After that tour, and then because then they expected it in Mexico. They expected it everywhere. And I just started to find my my comfort zone with it. And the 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 first time I lost my confidence was when I went to WWF at the time in the invasion. And I was the second guy in the invasion. And Big Kane choke slammed Edge. I came running through the crowd. I hopped to the top rope. I go. I told him, just don't move. Well, when I went, he leaned in like this. So when I came on him, I came on arm into his ribs and all that. And uh, Jack Lanza said, well, that's the end of that move. And I said, okay. <laughs> but they gave it back to me, but uh, Jack goes, you, that's it. He's one of our guys. You can't hurt him. I'm like, holy crap. 
Yeah, it's such, it's such a danger when you're like the new guy working with the top guy because anything that goes wrong, it's on you. Yeah, and, and I almost wanted – and that was the point where I knew not to – I had no answer. They said that's what it was. But I wanted to go run back to the tape. <laughs> He's like this. And I'm like, yeah. And I love that. If we get, and he reminds me of it all the time. But that was, uh, thank goodness, like X-Pac and, uh, and Hunter at the time who didn't know me, they all said, why are you not doing your thing anymore? And I said, well, you know, they don't want me to do it. So they went and petitioned for me to get it back. And that was, that was pretty cool when they did that. So when you left Japan, is that where you went with uh, Kevin Sullivan to WCW? Yeah, Japan, Japan and Mexico. And I was actually leaving. I, w- I was actually going to, like, be done wrestling. My second daughter was going to be born. I missed my first one. And I'd just been, you know, now it was steady. So it was like six years of steady being gone and, and definitely wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Uh, and Sullivan called me on, like, one of the first days back home. And he literally said, are you still fat? I said, I said, yes. And he said, you still wrestling? I said, yes. He said, be in Macon, Georgia tomorrow. And he hung up the phone. Well, come to find out that was when Vader and Orndorff went at it. And Orndorff put the boots to Leon. So they lost a big round guy. So they needed a big round guy <laughs> to feed Hogan. So I, I flew to Macon. Uh, I met Bischoff, Sullivan, and Hogan in the uh, showers in the Macon Coliseum. They offered me a deal, shook my hand, and sent me back to New Jersey. See, Jerry, everything happens in a shower. Yeah, everything. 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 Everything in our business does. Anyway. <laughs> Jer- Jerry and JJ hired me in a shower. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's the same thing. He went out Savio say, uh, Vega, worked so hard he got John a, jo- a job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Savio got me a job. <laughs> He's the one who kept me in Puerto Rico for three years, too. Obviously. What a great guy, Savio. Oh, love him. Yeah, Savio uh, was yeah. my first my tryout match, my first storyline, my first angle, my first pay-per-view match, my first gimmick match. Savio was pretty much – I owe him pretty much everything. Oh, he's – and he's – to me, he's a class act, but he's funny. I think you know, Hunter always said that uh, Savio was like the bumblebee. You know, the bumblebee's not supposed to fly. You know, Savio is not supposed to do all those things that he right. does. You know, but he's a, he's such a great worker. Oh, he, he was he was great. I enjoy I enjoyed my time with him. He's a good guy. So you you got hired there at, uh, in the shower at WCW, and uh, you, were you were you kind of taking uh, Vader's place, or you were taking Vader's place? Yeah. Well, they 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 had said, and and Hogan said he needs people that he can be around and trust, and someone's not going to hurt him. And I just stood there. You know, I I. To be honest, I was like, I've been doing this now six years or whatever. Yeah, you're it is, six but... years in the business, and you you hadn't really, you know, you worked Japan and Puerto Rico. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're standing there with Hulk Hogan. With, with Hogan, like I knew Sullivan, so I was comfortable. I didn't know who Eric was, and to be honest, I did at the time. I didn't care. I'm standing in front of freaking Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And he just said, he he just says, brother, here says you're safe and you won't hurt me, and I'm like, okay, and. So we literally shook hands. I watched the show. I was on a plane the next day. And I, I think I sat home for like three months. And I called Sullivan one day. And I'm like, uh, everything all right? And he's, you know, Sullivan, hey, but the problem, you're getting paid. Shut up. I'll let you know. And I'm like, huh? 
I'm not getting paid. What the hell are you talking about? You're getting paid. I saw your contract. I said, I've never even seen a contract. Next day, FedEx, there was the contract, and there was three months back pay. And Really? Oh, it, that's awesome. It was unbelievable. Like, the next day, I had a FedEx. Good for Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin, Kevin's great like that. Oh, I, Kevin, I've, heard I'm, stories, yeah. I've heard stories that Kevin does that, has that, but that that's awesome. When he when he found out I wasn't getting paid after they had talked to me because, it, it, you know, and he was the booker, and he, I guess he was under the assumption people were talking to me and getting me ready. And none of it was going on. So after three months, I was like, well, do I do I call? Because don't forget, I've never had this issue before. I always knew where I was and what tours I was on and things like that. And and the minute they the minute they started paying me, in came the airline tickets, and I was down in Atlanta shooting vignettes and all that stuff. So you're saying, why didn't I keep my mouth shut? Yeah, looking <laughs> back at it now, I go, boy, I, I could have milked this for like Lenny Poffo money. <laughs> Lenny Poffo sat with WCW for two years. No one knew he was on the payroll. I had Pat Tanaka came by the body shop one time. He'd, or he'd, worked, he'd worked for WCW three years. Pat Tanaka. Yeah. Close to 200K a year. And he had he had been on the road one time. It, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, to find out the guys that were on the payroll, like Vampiro, for, he, he'd been on the payroll for a year before anybody ever saw him. And then, you know, but guys would come in and go, hey, I've been getting paid for two. Lenny Poffo got booked on a show in Tampa where he lives. And he showed up without his gear. <laughs> and he goes, I, I don't know what they wanted. I haven't done anything in two years. And I was like, what world am I in? <laughs> but, yeah, so, no, but Kevin, he was really good about that. And uh, he, he put me right in with uh, – you know, the Hulkster and, and Savage and those guys. And uh, that's when I got to run with Ming and Barb because th- at that time, all the big guys were feeding Hogan for his stuff. And, and so, uh, I, like I said, I was fortunate. I was, again, I was in the right place at the right time and people started to trust me and, and just, just kept getting opportunities, you know, you know, you had to be a little bit overwhelmed. You know, I, I know, you know, I, I had very much the same career, you know, path, you know, I'd worked overseas. I'd worked in Europe for two years. I'd wrestled in yeah. Mexico, I wrestled in Japan, but then when I get to WWE and I see Shawn Michaels repel from that roof at WrestleMania, I think it was 12 against Bret Hart. I remember sitting there thinking, I need to go somewhere else because <laughs> this place is beyond me. Yeah. And I had to feel the same way at some point sitting there going, oh my God, I'm staying yeah. in front of Hulk Hogan. This is mean, Barb, Savage. When the, the yeah, first the promo, point, what, what am I doing here? Yeah, the first promo they had me cut to where I was going to be on TV, like an introduction, was on Randy Savage. <laughs> and the whole time I'm going, well, well, why do I have to talk about him? Like, I don't want to be in the ring with Randy the Macho Man Savage. Like, I'm just, and at the time I was, they called me the man of question. I didn't even have a name. So I was, and I'm like, so they said, cut this promo and, I cut the promo and I got back to New Jersey and there it was on a Saturday night show next week here, the introduction of the man of question against Savage. I'm going that whole week. I was like, Oh no, this week, we, how do we get out of this? Because these guys are, these Sorry. guys are the Kings of the ring, you know? So it was already nerve wracking meeting Hogan and shaking his hand. And then, but like Jericho had just come in at that time. So there was guys I was comfortable with because I knew them from Mexico and Japan. Yeah. But then I'm, you know, when I got to WC, I'm looking around, okay, there's, there's Sting. 
right before I got there, that's when everybody started jumping. There was Luger. There's all these guys, and I'm sitting there, and there's Pillman, and there's Arn Anderson, and there's the Four Horsemen, and all these guys. I'm going, yeah, the, I'm not in, I'm not in Puerto Rico anymore. Huh. And yeah, I really did question it, and I was like, and, but then I had you know guys like uh, Bossman and those guys in my ear going, you got to step up, you gotta you gotta start becoming part of what's going on, and so that as funny as the Dungeon of Doom was. As goofy as we were, I got I got the education I needed. They really those guys really did take me under their wing. DiBiase was great, um, and and I think I think they just appreciated how I handled myself. And like I said, just drive and listen to what they were doing. And they they made me. I wasn't uh, I wasn't intimidated to ask them questions where everybody else was like staying out of their way. I was like, it's like that the. Big dog who walks and the little dog who bounces behind him and follows him. Like for my first two years in WCW, I was like, what now, Ming? What do you want to do now, now, Ming? And I was like, as long as he kept playing cards with me and not, you know, beating me up, I was in good shape. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, but then, you know, you start to come into your own. And, and but those guys were always really good to me. Sullivan, Hogan, all the up and down the line. I, I, I did not have one issue in my whatever seven years in WCW. And if someone had an issue with me, I, I sure as heck didn't know about it. But uh, and and you're responsible for uh, all of Goldberg's success too, right? I, I was his yeah. The, like <laughs> I'm only known for his, his first match, but people forgot the third, the seventeenth, twenty third, the hundred and six. That they like there was an ongoing feud between me, uh, Nobs, and. Uh, was it was it Ming? Because Ming did a bunch of them too. I said I'm gonna have more than you by the end of the year, and that was you know. So if you really did his streak, he only had like 30 wins. <laughs> you know, we, we were watching it, you know, because he was getting really over. It's the one thing that really, I mean, he was on fire when he's yeah. done WCW. But we're looking at the numbers, so he'd be like 17 and 0 one week, then the next week he'd be 42 and 0. <laughs> Come on, guys, he he didn't have he didn't have 25 yeah. max. And I know the worst we worked part, a lot back then, but 25 in a week, right? Yeah. We're in the back of these live events going, he's not even on the road. How's he getting wins? Like, it became one of those things, like, we started believing his hype. Like, where are these right. wins? <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Time to tell you about something I'm super passionate about protecting your family. Yes, this is a life insurance ad for goliathlife.com. But to me, this is really about peace of mind. Think about insurance for a second. We all get medical and auto insurance, yet we never even know if we're going to have a need for it. Let me let you in on a little secret. You need life insurance. We're all going to die. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now. And just personally, I've lost two friends in their forties this past year and a half. And I don't even want to think about what their families would be going through. Had they not had life insurance. If you don't have it, get it, protect your family. 
And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance super easy. Goliath Life streamlines the life insurance process by allowing you to get quotes for more than 20 carriers within minutes. And you'll pick your terms and payments to fit your budget. You pick your price, you start the online application immediately, and even schedule the medical exam to come to you. And I've done it. They sent someone to my office. I skipped the phone calls, the paperwork, and the crazy invasive conversations. Goliath Life makes buying life insurance simple. There's no hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle. Hell, not even a phone call. Goliath Life is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. Well, you, you said something, uh, uh, just, uh, just a statement just a while ago that that's so important to these young guys. I don't think they really uh, have the, have the, have the vision to do the, but ask questions. That's the easiest way to get over with a veteran that there is not, not say, Oh, you're great and all that stuff, but ask them questions about matches and stuff like that. A, yeah. a young guy that asks questions to these veterans, the veteran, just this kid wants to learn, you know, you're not pestering the guy. You just want question answers. Yeah. And, and when you, when you ask the veteran a question, I think that kind of endears you to the guy, to the, to the guy, to the stars. And it kind of helps your progression all the time. So when you said you were asking questions all the time, that's the reason for your sin and your talent, because you're learning as they were giving you answers there, but that's so important. what you say, man. And, and I think a lot of the guys now, and I don't want to put anybody in that category, but now I, I don't know. Cause you know, I've been removed from the full time part of it, but still talking with people. I don't think they treat anybody like veterans anymore. Like I, I think everybody comes in and they feel they're on the same, the same level. So they're not asking, you have those exceptions, but I think everybody thinks once they make it, they don't need to ask questions. They'll figure it out on their own. And there's still a lot of resources there. Like, that I think, but that I was taught that like you got to gain trust first, and and you know if you keep pushing too hard, and you they're just kind of kind of forget about you. But I you know I figured I learned it, and and then I had rhino skin too. So the times when you know you, you know Sullivan can get ornery when he wants to, and if you're if you're asking too many things or he's got other stuff on his mind as a booker, I mean he come chew you out a little bit, and if you took it personal, you were done. But you're right back there and knew, you know, knew it wasn't personal. And that was the thing back then. You knew when it was personal and you knew when it was business because back then all the men were men and they'd look you in the eye and go, there's a problem, you know. But now nobody, I don't think anybody treats anybody like a veteran. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I, I go in for, you know, stuff, you know, but we're pretty separate from the regular crew. You know, right. a lot of guys come by and are very respectful. I mean, very respectful. Come on and say hello, you know, but nobody's, nobody's knocking down the door to ask questions though. Right. <laughs> right. And I wonder how many guys are, and I don't know if Stewie's still there. How many of the guys realize that go to the cameraman? Oh my go goodness. To, go to the yeah. production people. That it's is such a great point. I got, that's where I got my education. The one thing that was so different between WCW and WWE was WWE's cameraman and, and their production. I mean, Jerry can tell you those guys have been there forever. They know how to shoot wrestling. They know what they know how to guy to get guys over. You know, and, and if you listen to them, you know when Marty was the, the cameraman, yep. or he's a director, he would help you tremendously. Look this way, look that way. You're, yeah. You know, he, he he would give you all kinds of cues 
if you're willing to listen. And that was one of the differences with WCW was yeah. they, were, they were using guys that were just part of Turner that they'd fill in guys. And, and so you, not even, all of them were always consistent. WWE yeah. was always consistent with that. It was such, such a, you know, it's, it's one of the, I think it's part of the reason for success. You know, Vince and Kevin, you know, both second generation, both dads worked together. They worked together. They grew up in the business. And I think that makes the, all the difference in the world. And WCW-wise, um, that was the, I think that was the hardest transition because everybody, you know, everybody, lack of a better term, got away with murder. They, they you know, the, the, they were definitely, the inmates were definitely running the asylum, but we got to WWE and Rico comes up to you and goes, Hey, you know what I noticed? And a lot of the, a lot of the guys who were like still young kids, who got an opportunity freaking cameraman telling me what to do. And I'm sitting there going, what do you mean? He goes, this side of the ramp, this is where the lights are. This is, and he goes, maybe if you do that, and I'm going, it's just another another resource. But if they spent that time, I mean, even, and I hate to say this, like, where it's going to be public, but Chimmel. Oh, no. I hate <laughs> no. to say it. Yeah. Oh, no. But that's, people that's, that's who have been that's there. John's adopted son, by the way. It's so, people who have been there had something, hey, you know what worked for so-and-so and maybe this would work. For, and so everybody was trying to help you. And a lot of WCW guys took it as uh, there's a reason I'm here, right? Like I'm not here because I need to learn something. I'm here because I know. And learn something from a camera guy. Yeah. What, you know, what all they do is sh- here's my best side. Well, all of a sudden it's the back of your head, the rest of your career. And all those guys, all those guys were great. And, uh, Everybody, when we walked into WCW from production, hey, I'm I'm from the truck and we shoot this. I'm listening. Like, what is it? What? You oh, know, they're so today. good and, and they're so knowledgeable. Uh, all of them, you know, ex- except for Chimmel, of course. But they're uh, <laughs> <laughs> just in case Chimmel's watching. I can't put him over. Can't keep uh, putting him over. No, no. But the, they're also knowledgeable from the guys who are producing stuff to the truck to everything. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. And they're they've they've seen thousands and thousands of matches. They know what works on television. Yeah, it's a, it's a fountain of knowledge. That was my 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 favorite part of becoming part of the company was when I started working more behind the scenes. Because they're just workhorses, man. They're just, and they're on it. They're not there. Like I say, a lot of people check boxes. Like, okay, I'm here. I got a 12-hour day. Let me check the box. I, I enjoyed talking. The, the catering people were great because they tell you something that they saw. Like, everybody was invested in the company, in the product. And they the, the, the seamstresses treat them like crap. You look like crap. <laughs> treat them with respect then they want to help you enhance your appearance and tell you the things that maybe this you know it, to me it was all that stuff happened in wwe and i think a lot of it um came from you know if you came if you didn't come from that it was a culture shock but at the other side you were being told you we were given the heads up pay attention you know, I, I don't want to stooge the uh, seamstresses, but I, was, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, those ladies can be evil, <laughs> and I mean that in a very complimentary way. I, they were telling me last time I was flying back, 
and I'm not going to mention any names. There's only a couple of them, but I'm not going to mention their names. <laughs> but they're telling me in the airport about the times that they, they had so different stuff into people's clothes, you know, that were that were dicks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, some type of button or something inside where it would move around all the time. It shows, like, a seam together or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I learned real quick. Like, awesome. Oh, they're, they're in control of how I look and how I feel. And... uh I've seen I've seen people argue with them, and I've seen what they look like when they're wearing their stuff. And I'm like, that's yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. You know, one thing I remember because uh, you're the only superstar important enough for us to interview twice <laughs> from the first show was that when you got fired on your debut for WWE before you got rehired. And tough enough, they fired. Oh no, the, the WrestleMania 17. Yep, down in Texas. It's- this is it. You, so you, uh, I started in Gleason's gym. I spent three years in Puerto Rico. I went to Japan and Mexico for three years, WCW. And now I have an opportunity to start my WWE career in the ring at WrestleMania 17 next to Shane McMahon. They fly us in secret squirrel at two o'clock in the morning to some rinky dink airport. And we stayed at a hotel outside the city limits and got woken up at six o'clock the morning of mania and you're fired get everybody in the lobby be there in five minutes and it was john johnny ace you're like everybody down there you're all fired (laughs) and trying to figure out what happened between the time i landed (laughs) and then you and so you're trying to put it together and going like i flew in with these couple guys nothing you know we're here in the hotel lance storm comes down now he's pissed which you know he's so even killed you don't know if he's mad happy or or breathing half the time he's just so straight and now he's talking to me and he's on fire and johnny comes down and says you know kevin dunn called them send every one of them home we got no use for him because someone went on the internet the night before and gave up the 10 names that were showing up in the ring and lo and behold, he, he didn't think that that was wrong because someone actually wanted to speak to him. So he's kind of putting himself over. So, so, of course, so, of course, you just tell everything, you know, because somebody wants to talk to you. Gave the gave the 10 names and what was proposed for us that day. Holy cow. So we went from being going to get the red carpet. To being picked up on some kind of little short yellow bus. And when we get in there with our gear, there's Ernie Ladd. And now, like, the people who knew Ernie Ladd were going, oh, crap. He doesn't talk to us the whole way. Nicole DeRazio was on the bus, too. Remember Nicole? Oh, yeah. Uh, Nicole and, and Ernie Ladd, they bring us they bring us to the back. Well, how would you get hired back? You got fired. Well, who, who well they told back? us we they, – they told us because they flew us in there, they had to, they had to show us. So they, they, we, I mean, we really got the bad news bears treatment. We walked up, they took us to stairs, no elevators. We had to walk up all those stairs to the skybox. Yeah, Early so didn't walk those stairs. Early didn't walk those stairs, though. No, he didn't. We did. No, no they got, I guarantee they got Ernie a lift. And when we got there, they told us, you can leave your bags in this bus. Oh. So we walk up the stairs here come the sky boxes not that one not that one it was one in the dark that had some uh stuff they'd moved from other rooms 
and in there was a, a cheese and cracker plate and a couple bottles of Coke. Catering, huh? And we sat there in the dark, and then Shane came, if you remember, Shane came out, introduced his friends, and there's a silhouette of me, Lance Storm, and I forget who else was sitting next to us, just miserable. <laughs> and so that was our WrestleMania moment, and we said, now we're all going home. And they brought us, we walked all the way down the stairs, they brought us back to the hotel, and they said, make sure you get your flights on time. And so I, I, I knew I was fired till I got home uh, from that. And then uh, I got to talking to and uh, then they, t- you know, who, who gave it up. And this is, you're, you know, you're not in WCW anymore and all that stuff. And it just, you know, the funny part was it just kept escalating because then we were sent to Stanford to go to tracks and work out because a lot of the guys had never been in a 20 foot ring before. Well, that turned into a, a lack of a better term, a shit show. And one guy went home with stitches and needed plastic <laughs> surgery. And we, we, that, that group couldn't catch a break. And by the time a couple of us started finding our footing, they started bringing back all the other WCW guys, you know, they were, you know, Paige was coming in and all the, you know, Tori Wilson now was coming in everybody was coming in. I'm going, I'm right back to where I started in WCW again. I'm like, whoa, what the hell just happened here? So there was nothing, nothing we could do at that point to, to gain traction. It was, uh, it, it was a madhouse. You know, the invasion angle, I just thought was done so poorly. You know, and, and, you know it was so quick too. It, it went from right there because we were told once we were told we, were, we had our jobs, we were told that this is the, where it was going to go. And Shane was really excited about it at the time. And he was looking for, and all of a sudden it was, so then the ECW guys were put back together. The WCW guys were put back together. Then they were mixing and mashing us all over the place. And next thing you know, I think the invasion was one pay-per-view. And then the next time it was just all a cluster. Bill, Bill, you were at, at WCW the last show when when Shane and Bruce yes. and I showed up. Did you guys have any any inkling that what was going on that day? I mean, from the office standpoint, or anything, no, for, anybody enlighten you guys? No, for years because we like we talked before. Like one week we told Coca Cola bought the company from Turner. Uh, AOL had bought the company. Then some other lawyer group was going to buy the company. And everybody kept saying they're buying it because nobody wants wrestling. You guys are going to be out of a job anyway. So every week we just figured if we were there, nobody bought it yet. So by the time the, the buyout actually came, when we were in Panama City, we knew it was for real because all of a sudden it was WWE crew this way. But then half of it was like, these guys just don't quit. Like, <laughs> you know, who was running the show by then were like, who cares? Just We're just going to go eat and get ready for the night. But then it was more WWE production wwe wwe and by the time we got to catering all the mice were in the room going ah, nah, 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 nah. what do we do now no and then you shane bruce walked into that big room to have a meeting and i thought it was the greatest day ever because half the room just sunk like melted like oh crap like it's real and because, you know, some of the guys had burned bridges. Some of the guys uh, burned. They blew well, them up. <laughs> I was, yeah. Well, they kind of, yeah. It was kind of like uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but 
everybody was great to us and talking to us. And so I just figured, you know, for me, I was like, well, uh, I'm going to go probably go back to Japan or something and, you know, finish it out there. And then, uh, but everyone was great who was talking to us. And uh, I, I think it was Shane told me not to read into it, but they want me to do be the opening dark. And he says, is that okay? And yeah. And I did that. We, we left, we got home to Panama from Panama city and Jr. I got a phone call from uh, Jr. said I'm in Tampa or St. Pete. I think at that big pink hotel in St. Pete there. And uh, he said, uh, meet me there Wednesday, 1030. And hung up the phone. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to drive out there. And Jamie Noble got the same phone call. And Jamie's just a, a young one at the time. And he didn't have a way to get there. So we drove to Tampa together and he was freaking out. And then he made me freak out. And I'm like, oh, crap, this is, this is going to be the worst meeting ever. And as, as guys were coming in, like Stasiak would come out of the meeting and he was white as a ghost. And they go, and Johnny come down and go, okay, Bill, you're next. I'm going, I don't want to go in there. Like, what, what the hell is going on? So, but, and that's how it happened. Uh, but it was, I, I enjoyed it. I, I didn't enjoy the whole process being lumped into a certain category because I think it took a lot to dig out of certain holes. But um, I, I was stand by, I was treated great. Uh, everybody was from day one. And, you know, I think it helped that I knew some of the guys from, you know, from the road and passing by and stuff like that. But the other side too is you just didn't act like a jackass. You know, you didn't, we, we realized some, the, the smart ones realized we were coming into your locker room. We weren't part of the locker room yet. I didn't feel like, and so you didn't just put your bags down and make yourself at home and go sit in catering for four hours. Like you did every night in WCW, you, you know, you made your rounds and. Uh, yeah. We, you know, we felt like, you know, like new guys were coming in, not like the enemy was coming in. Yeah. I think there's a big difference. You know, it wasn't like, hey, these are the guys who are fighting with us because we never felt that way anyway. We never had any animosity toward the boys whatsoever. Right. You know? And so when you guys came in, it was sure it was new guys, but it wasn't like, okay, these are the guys who tried to put us out of business. That, that right. was never, that but was we never had, a fault, at least, at least the group I was with. Yeah. We had a bunch of young guys, though, at the time talented athletic guys that were getting an opportunity in WCW that didn't, that weren't brought in the right way. So when they came, they didn't think they had to, you know, kind of, uh, I say, start over. And I remember one time and I'll just use Taker's name because take, you know, we were there and at the end of the show, we had a couple guys from WCW been there half a minute and they waited till the end of the day till they were in front of him to say hello. And he custom pillar to post. You don't get low. I've been here all day. You don't come to me when I'm walking past you. You know, there's a way we do things around here. And they were like, what was that? But then we knew that was the difference. And uh, while a lot of guys, and, I, and I'll, I'll get in trouble for saying, there was a lot of guys who were professional wrestlers, but weren't professional. You know, they were, they were just pro right. wrestlers. And uh, they had an opportunity and, and WWE was a, a big wake-up call for a lot. Even veterans, I think it was a big wake-up call of how things, you know, should be run and how things, you know, do get run. I mean, we, 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 we ran by the seat of our pants for the last three years in WCW, and every day was a crapshoot. So no one, really, no one really cared, you know. They got 30 days a year, they got to be on the road, and they don't care. 
It, may, it must have been been great though when you when you when you came to WWE you who knew who the boss was. Whereas at WCW, if you show up at work, well, who's the boss today? Yeah, and we like we that. had and the thing that was really big for for certain guys like Jack Lanza was now my agent. But in WCW, somebody just come and tell you, hey, you're on this segment of web. But now you had someone literally, you know. Here's your time. Here's the, you know, here's the, here's the deal for the day. And then I had Mr. Briscoe, I had you forever. And I, I just was surrounded by people that like, to me, that was the most, the best part of the transition was like, not just being thrown into the wolves, but if you, if, if you did it the right way, people were going to help you. And, and guys like Landa and, and <clears throat> the guys around, they were, they were great advocates for the talent. You, if you had an issue, you could go to the, your agent and yeah. it'd, it'd help you work out your, your issues with it. And there was a lot of guys, I think, that were really defensive about that <clears throat> because they didn't have that, you know, uh, in, in WCW. No matter how you successful know. they were, I don't think they had – there wasn't a lot of leadership. There wasn't a lot of – uh, let's just because you're on TV doesn't mean you're a veteran of the, you know, of the camera and in the ring and stuff, but everybody was just, once you're out there, you're out there, figure it out. And then coming to WWE, you had people that were invested in what you were doing and trying to help you do more. And some guys took to it and some guys didn't. Yeah. You know, you talk about Lanza, you know, he had such respect and oh. there was a real hierarchy. J Jack told me one time the story, and I, and I wasn't there when it happened. I had no idea what it was over, but he had fined uh, the Ultimate Warrior over something. Something minor. I had no idea what it was. And it could have been late. I had no idea. It wasn't very much money. But Vince went to him and said, hey, I really I really don't want to find Warrior uh, over, over whatever it was. He goes, will you let him off? And that was Vince asking Jack. He gave him right. that much authority, and Jack said, "Nah, I, I said it. I need to stay with it." And Vince said, "Okay, fine." But that was, you know, that that's a cool hierarchy and how much respect Jack Lanza had, yeah, among he, the boys. And it was, he treated you like he knew you forever too. Like he didn't yeah. treat you like this. He talked to you. Everybody was always great in the locker room. You were great, and not because you're sitting here. Bob Holly, who, you know, Bob had a reputation of being a certain guy. I had more fun with Bob Holly because you get to know these guys and, you know, Billy Gunn and, you know, Albert and all the, all the big guys. And then you're sitting there and you knew if you could, if everybody was talking to you, like you'd been there for a long time, you were doing the right thing. You were part of the, the company now. And, and there were certain guys who just didn't, who didn't feel they had to do that. And that was, to me, that was the biggest Biggest thing for me transitioning to WWE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Words are about to be spoken and the wrestling podcast world is about to be broken. Hey, I'm John Alba, co-host of The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy, and I wanted to invite you to join the iconic Matt Hardy and I every single Friday as we take a peek inside the locked room that is one of pro wrestling's most creative minds. 
You'll hear stories spanning more than three decades in the industry, like this week, when Matt shared his recollections of getting a call from Vince McMahon before the Hardys made their shocking return at WrestleMania 33. Uh, hey, uh, Vince just wanted to, to bust you. Look, look, fuck. Make sure Jeff doesn't do anything fucking stupid and cripple himself tonight. I fucking, I know how he is. Fucking reel him in, all right? Towards WrestleMania. Damn it. Yes, sir. I got it. It'll be good. I promise. All right? I think. All right. See you tomorrow. Hear stories like that and many more from the course of the Hardy Boys' incredible career every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and with early access exclusively on adfreeshows.com. As a veteran, as a veteran you'd, you'd, you'd experience locker rooms at WCW and locker rooms at WWE, and you just described the difference. Of, why do you think the reason was it? That, that so much easier in WWE locker room because guys knew the position guys knew what they were there for, or there was no jealousy going on or what? Yeah. The, I, because there was a lot of just checking the boxes in WCW. Like the, I'm getting paid a lot of guys. It was so much guaranteed money. If I'm not on, who cares? I showed up, I signed in, I'm eating, I'm not on, I'm out. And they're flying home the same day as TV. And there's no repercussions. There's no, you know, nobody was being held accountable to be there or, hey, you've been here a while, show these guys the ropes or, you know, something like that or work on your promos. And all of a sudden we're in WWE and there's a room you can go to all day long and, and work on your promos and cut promos and they'll show them the creative and you can talk to this guy and, and that guy. But there was no accountability in WCW. A lot of good guys. And I, I don't mean it was like total mayhem, but. There was just no accountability. You didn't have to do anything. And if you were working, cool. If you weren't, cool. And right. you you guys have had that attitude. If everybody came to work and the whole night long, so you could be called the last minute and you'd be on. WCW not on and we're leaving. So we get the WWF at the time and you're in the garden and you got to have the locker room leading because they're not on the show but you're not watching what these guys do and you're not watching like what, what gets them over? What, what are they looking for? What's the difference in this company and where we came from? So I think the big thing for me was there was no accountability. And I think it showed early on. I think a lot of, a lot of like talented cats realized early on that, that they were just uh, over their head in it. You know, one of the reasons that Jerry and I enjoy doing this show, and of course you're the only superstar important enough to be on twice, twice. <laughs> is we just enjoy bantering with our buddies, you know, and, and I, and I think that's what the locker room, I mean, I was obviously, I wasn't in WCW locker, but in WWE guys really enjoyed hearing stories from, yeah. from the contemporaries, you know, guys would have somebody have a, a problem with a rental car. Somebody have a problem with a flight. Somebody having fun last the night before guys would come in and tell people about it. Everybody would listen. Everybody just have fun just telling stories and sitting around BSing and joking. It was one of the most pleasurable places to yep. be and most fun places to be was in the locker room when you're sitting there with the boys just bantering back and forth about some of the most crazy nonsensical shit in the world that doesn't make a difference to anybody else but to us it was fun right and it was every day and I, every day that's right and, yeah. and i think that was the big yield for a lot of the guys because there was there wasn't that you have a couple conan and his guys have been some part of catering doing their thing um, there was a ton of times where, where I was literally with Raven and Sting playing chess, you know, because no one was ever in a spot. They, it was never like a, 
there was no kumbaya. There was no, hey, man, or this or that. You did your thing. You were out. Move on. See you in the next town. Uh, even during the shows, people weren't watching the monitors. Up until about six months before we got sold was the first time there was a big monitor for us to watch the show. And we got to WWE, and there's a place for talent to watch the show, to be ready, all these things. And a, a culture shock, I think, played a lot in it. But a lot of guys just weren't prepared to um, for that. And I think it's the difference between um, pro wrestling and then professional wrestling. Uh, you know, everybody – I could say, ah, oh, I was a pro since 1988 – but I wasn't making my living until 90. You know what I mean? But right. there was a lot of guys who came in and go, I made it. You didn't make anything. Like, you got to. I remember guys used to joke about, you know, we'd sit around before the monitors. We'd sit around at the curtain, you know, watch the, the match. And guys would always pick, you know, pick the matches apart. You know, so we would, you know, we didn't want to comment on good stuff. We wanted, we wanted to laugh about yes. bad stuff. And guys would always say, you know, what's, what's amazing is some of you guys go out there and think nobody else is back here laughing at you. <laughs> yeah, you do it, and then all of a sudden you're the one out That's there. Right. I'm out here, and this is all good. Nobody's saying anything bad about me. <laughs> we were in Detroit, and Shane got had Billy Gunn all revved up. That isn't hard to do. He's wow. Just, he's yeah. not, I love Billy, but Billy is the most fun oh, person to so ever easy. rev up. So Billy's working with Stasiak. I'm working with Bob Holly. So Shane's in the middle going, well, everybody knows Bob has the better drop kick and Hugh's going to at least bump for him. He goes, Billy couldn't kick Sean in the chest and we know how Sean bumps. So now everybody's arguing. So Shane makes the bet and he's going to put the best drop kick on the, on the, the Tron that night. And so Bob and I said, he says, no matter what happens, I said, no matter what happens, you bring it to my face. And so Bob hits the beautiful drop kick that he does right in the mush. Down I go. Billy goes to hit the drop kick, and his dancing partner kind of shied away. And Billy, <laughs> so Shane couldn't even wait till he got through the curtain. And so everybody's waiting because now you know Shane's doing his dance, and now Billy's pissed at Stasiak, and me and Bob are laughing. And that was the kind of stuff that, but it was fun. Like oh, yeah. it wasn't fun. maliciously, it was like. There's that competition, but there's that fun part of it. And everybody – so everybody's watching to see who's going to do hey, the best. Bob, Bob Holly had, I think, the best drop kick oh, man. in the history of the business. I, I thoroughly was, enjoyed it every oh, time. It was so good. Yeah. But but Billy is one of the best athletes in the history of the business. I've seen Billy do some stuff that's absolutely amazing. I saw him in a pickup basketball game one time come in like Jordan from the free throw line during a free throw and catch a ball and dunk it off the rebound. I'm like, oh, my God. And it's a guy who rode bulls. He never – That's right. He was a now rodeo he's big, guy. Now he's big as a bull. God, God. Uh, John, I think I told you one time, uh, you know, during during my volunteer coaching uh, career down here at Sickles High School, I, I, I traveled all over the state, and I ran into Billy Gunn's high school football coach and the athletic director. He told me that was the greatest athlete that he'd ever coached in like his 40 year career. He said, I, wow. we didn't, it didn't matter what we asked him to do. He could do it. He yeah. had never seen it before. Never heard about it before. We described to him. He said, the guy could do it and not only do it, but do it better than the, better than the guy that originated it. He's like Howie Long, right? Howie Long couldn't read a playbook, but if you told him what to do, 
Oh yeah, that, that's look at the career he had. Like that's Billy. You just tell him. And you're Billy, talking Billy to somebody right there that had Howie Long kicked his ass several times. I, I did. I, in fact, a lot of across from Howie one time were, were in training camp, and I got a call slip cut, which is kind of a which is really a high low block, but the guard right. goes through and, and the tackle cuts. It's been outlawed since, but technically <laughs> it wasn't a high low. All the defensive linemen, you always get to fight over that because it was pretty much a high low block. So I call slip cut in practice. And Howie Long looks up at me, had that little circle, you know, thing on his on his helmet. He looks at me, goes, "John boy, if you cut me, it's gonna be a long day." <laughs> and I said, "Mr. Long, I wouldn't do that in practice." That's exactly what I said. And when I did, I took the step, and Howie let me block him. Let let, let me be, <laughs> just you know, Howie was the ultimate practice player, but he wanted to make sure that I wasn't trying to make the team off him. Oh God! And I said, "No, sir, Mr. Long, I wouldn't do that in practice." I've seen that man get mad. I had no yeah. desire for him to be mad at me. Amazing. Well, Bill, one, had- one thing, the one thing you're doing that's so amazing, and I, and I know because uh, you're the only superstar important enough to interview twice, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is what you're doing with your charity. And it's a really incredible work. You're changing lives. You're saving lives. Tell us a little bit of, uh, about what you're doing with your charity. So we, you know, uh, I always go back to, you know, we're talking about the journey, right? We, we've all been on this journey and, and sometimes things, things happen. Uh, in 2015, my, my middle daughter was on her way home. Um, she was uh, hit head on by a, a drunk driver. She was killed by a drunk driver. Um, and, and trying to figure out what to do with that and how to, you know, manage that um as a family and we we realized uh you know going back to i knew i knew what my daughter wanted to do you know she's a junior in ucf down here and uh, she wanted to help people she her she was majoring in sociology and things like that and, uh so we started the foundation and it was just to kind of um raise awareness about drunk driving but, but as it grew and we started talking to kids, uh, we realized there's a lot more going on than just, you know, telling them about something that doesn't really affect them yet. You know, if they're in high school and, you know, kids will do stuff in high school. But we started hearing their stories and how they were affected by something else. So the foundation started uh, to make sure that my daughter um, was never considered a statistic. And so we knew that we could, there's something we could do to make sure that she wasn't treated that way or, or anyone else. And it's kind of blossomed in, in this six years now that she's been gone and the foundation now travels nationwide. Uh, we speak from elementary schools to college. Uh, we speak with sports teams. We work with law enforcement, corporate events, and we talk about decisions people make and how they affect other people. So we, for the kids, we touch on social media and the bullying and the, and I go back to wrestling because if anybody's going to tell kids about social media and the effects of it, I figure I'm a pretty good candidate to uh, explain to them how the good and bad of social media works. Um, But then that whole time in the business, I never, you know, what you're groomed for and you're, you know, we're in front of millions of people in our career and, and performing, but it, it also gave me the confidence to know that I could speak to a group and, and have that message, you know, resonate. So I always go back and I've said this 
every time that wrestling prepared me for what I'm actually supposed to be doing. And so I, I, you know, we travel, uh, we have victim services here at the foundation. We work with families that have been affected to make sure that uh, as they try to navigate their journey, that we're with them every step of the way. Um, and then we work on legislature and uh, the, the running joke when people go, build a mod like uh, wrestling, build a mod. And they, so they don't often think of you as uh, halfway intelligent, right? They go, oh, you're the wrestler. But then when they talk to you, realize what you're talking to them about. And they're like, wow. So uh, always, I'm always grateful to wrestling because it gave me that platform to be able to speak and, and deal with all kinds of things. But just like John, just like what you're doing, we just know there's a, a calling for it. And this, this is our, this is, this is my calling. And, and so this is what I do uh, seven days a week. Um, when I finished up with WWE in 2015, this all happened within the same three month period. And so I, I stopped working altogether. I don't, this is all volunteer stuff um, just to get out there and be in front of people. And now we travel and I drive around the country and we, and we speak and uh, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by guys that are doing it. You being one Mark Merrow being another and, and guys that have just had life experience and want to do something for someone else. And it goes to me, it all goes back to that coaching thing and that, and, and what we've done and, if I was willing to coach athletes who were trying to do something, let's then let's coach these kids into making decisions that they're going to keep them around and stuff like that. Um, so that that's kind of where it's been. Uh, that's that's been the last six and a half years, and uh, I I try to keep my ear to the pavement. I'm you know I'm always you, you cannot never be a fan of the business. I still in my mind I'm prepared for one more season to toughen up somewhere down the line. Uh, I'm waiting for that call. I know Laurenitis has got my number on speed dial, so I know it's coming. But uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing. And so we're a 501c3. We're a nonprofit. Um, everything we do stays where we are. We just opened a chapter of the foundation in New Jersey, and we're up there quite a bit. Um, so wherever we are, we raise those funds and things to get into those schools and speak to the kids. Um, I just got back from Alabama where I spoke to 3,200 kids last week. And uh, to get that response from them after a prom or graduation saying, wow, thank you. And the parents are, you know, I don't know what you said, but the conversation has been pretty cool. And, uh, you know, it all, it, to be sappy, it all comes back to that, that coaching and being coachable and, and then just trying to help people out. And there's a, you know, I think it'd be easy to go out and it's, it's not a knock on anybody, but, I don't want to go out and uh, take bumps and stuff. I have a bigger, you know, I have a bigger platform now and, and wrestling has helped me find that. And so what, what do you need legislatively to help? So what, you know, as like a lot of things, if it doesn't apply to us, we don't know really what the law is. We know drinking and driving is against law. So then you start looking into these laws and what they really say and you find out what they say and what's being done are two different things. So what we're working on here in Florida first is accountability for what the law says. Because you can get stopped for drunk driving 67 times, once in each county, before you ever get charged once. Because they have diversion programs or these things. 
but in the law, it doesn't state that. So the, the man who, who took my daughter's life was a three-time offender. So he did this three times before he killed my daughter because there's options. So we want to hold offenders accountable, and but we want to hold judges and, and legislature accountable. So when we're not speaking and, and working with families and, and doing the things we do, we work on the legislature. So every year we've gotten closer. And I think this may be the year where the uh, right now we're calling that Kerry's law goes into place. And, and, and it just means accountability for what's written. The law is the law. There's no leeway. You can't be three times over the limit and get a fine and go about your business. There, the law states certain things. And that's what we're so we're trying to get rid of the repeat offender mentality. Right. That's yeah, always yeah, frustrating that, when you hear about a tragic accident like that and you start reading a story. Oh, this is oh, the sixth time or third oh, or fourth time this guy has been charged. You know, why? Yeah. You know? I, yeah. I speak uh, at victims impact panels. I travel a state and I go and share my daughter's story with offenders. It's part of their uh, sanctions. They have to go to a victim's impact panel. And to know that someone's been in that class seven times now is oh. uh it's appalling as a father, but as someone just a citizen, like there's people out there, they can do whatever they want until, until something happens. So our big, our big, one of our big things is we want people to get involved before they get affected. So we talk about drunk impaired, distracted driving, and then those decisions and how it, you know, domino theory of how it affects people um, down the line. Bill, Are you guys working working with Dutch Mantella? Because I know his what his granddaughter was tragically killed. Yeah, when, when that happened, um, we Dutch and I actually spoke, um, and then uh, I'm not sure what's gone on since then. But you know, like a lot of tragedies and things like that, everybody handles it different. And we found out, and what got me speaking was I'd met a dad who who his daughter was taken from him, and he didn't leave his house for eight years. He he he's kind of he was kind of wasting away because he didn't know what to do. And he, and he came to something I spoke at for law enforcement and he stopped me and and he looked me in the eye. And this, he's an older gentleman. And he said, don't stop talking. And that was just the sign of they just hit you in the heart. Like and he told me that his wife said he hasn't spoken to anybody in eight years. He hasn't been out of the house. And tonight he came out of the house for this. So when he said, don't stop. And I have my, my boys 13 and my oldest daughter is 28. They need to know that they have a voice. They need to, you know, because they're going through it just like me and their mom are. And uh, so I, I don't want them to be afraid of life. I don't want them to shelter in. I, you know, I want to help them through the process and at the same time set the tone for them to know that they, you know, they, they have things to do and, and, you know, they're going to, they're going to be useful to people and, and it's going to be, uh, yeah, we're changing. You know, I say, Carrie, Carrie allows me to speak for her and she's, she's changing the world. She's saving lives. So that's kind of like my thing now. Bill, what, what's the answer on the, the, the prosecution end? Is it for repeat offender? Is it taking their license? Is it locking them up? What, what is the answer on, on that end? So the, in, in Florida, I'm not sure what it's like in every state, but in Florida, it says on your license that if you refuse field sobriety tests or you get stopped, and if you refuse to take those tests, you lose your license for a year. 
automatic no matter if you're convicted or not you you lose your license for the year well that doesn't come to be they go and they plead down and then they get their license back and so there is no sanctions really so everything that's in place there's no set everybody changed it judges don't feel like it's important it's a misdemeanor but if it's your third time you're still treating it like a misdemeanor and it's not your third time like 0.08 and going this person's barely drunk these are people that are three and four times over the limit. You know, sure. you're when you drink that much and, and, and I would say, I know how much I can drink, but it doesn't mean I should be out driving, doing it. And I made the decision to get behind the wheel, knowing what I've drank, you know? So we start letting people know, like you, you can't do this. And it starts with the judges. You can't decide what's important and what's not important and how many times that same judges let the same person go. So now they have to be held accountable. So we've much like wrestling, right? So there's gotta be, there's gotta be a bad guy. And so sometimes I, I, I'll get on the social media or I'll get to a news thing and, and I will call that judge by name. And, and, you know, I, I want to know, I want, everybody needs to know why this is happening and, and, you know, what's, what's going on. So we've made a lot of, uh, a lot of headway here in Florida. And as things branch out, we, you know, there may be an opportunity coming up soon to speak on the national level. I've been asked if I was interested in going to Washington to address the issue. So uh, the answer is yes. Not what I set out to do. I'd much rather be talking about flag football or something like that, or my boys baseball games, but there's like, I didn't, it didn't pertain to me until it happened. And I think that's that's awful sometimes that that's how we learn more. Um, but like it goes back to I know what I know what my kid was going to do, and I want to make sure that she does it. And how how can people support what you're doing? Um, just just by going to our website, and it's uh it's a long one. It's www.thecarryanddemottfoundation.com. We're a five hundred one c three, so everything we do is donations and sponsorships. We don't have uh, backing, like I said, uh, all, everything I do is volunteer. Everybody who's on our board, that's everybody's a volunteer. And so we, we hold events for the community throughout the year. We have scholarships for high school students. We also have scholarships for law enforcement and first responders so they can continue their education and not pay out of their pocket. So everything we're doing, we want to make sure that it goes back to everybody getting the, the things they need to one, protect us and keep educating everybody else, but then two, to, to let people know that, that we have an epidemic that needs to be, you know, discussed because they're, you know, numbers wise, 10, 000, over 10,000 people a year, uh, you know, so a, a terrible analogy, if 10 people got shot in a mall, it's national news and it's a, it's a tragedy. 10,000 people a year are being killed. Right something we can control so or at least hold them accountable because if i know i can keep getting away with it well there's really no punishment so and and unfortunately the the, the man who kept making the same decision on his fourth time he killed my daughter and i need to make sure that that doesn't happen to someone else 
Wonderful work, Bill, that you're doing there. And I know uh, you've been on twice, but you know what, Bill? You're more than welcome to come on two more times. <laughs> That's right. Third, three, four, five. I have to tell this one story that I did not tell last time. And it's gonna oh, get me the first time, no, It's no, gonna no, be no. it's gonna get me in a lot of trouble right now with you, Mr. Briscoe. I've read it. John, good. When I started with WWE, we were in uh, I can't remember the town, but we we're in catering. And over in the corner of catering is sitting Bruce, Laurinaitis, I want to say Ed Kosky, and Mr. Briscoe. I believe I'm probably sitting with Chavo and some of the guys, and they're looking. They're looking. Now you know you're being looked at in catering, and I'm going, crap. Well, my my um, what's the word I want to use? My uh, my loyalty was being tested as we were getting ready for a Florida live events. A certain group of young men who were always brought to these live events who personally stunk on ice, but because a legend was bringing his students, these kids <laughs> always got on the live events. So I was. Um, I was given the task of making sure that none of these young men would like another opportunity because they've been there 42 times and they're <laughs> rotten. So there was a young man who was also starting with the company and I, I don't know his name, but RKO comes to mind for some reason. <laughs> and so I, um, I brought this young man with me and I said, we have something to do today. And I said, I want all of this gear perhaps restored with icy hot, with tiger bomb, something so the muscles don't get tight. So the athletes are, you know, well, lo and behold, missions accomplished. We're watching the live event. Out comes this legend in his jacket. And he starts squirming and he's watching his guys and his guys are rotten and everybody's watching the monitor and Laurenitis is looking at me. I'm going. <laughs> so the young man that I enlisted to be my accomplice, instead of doing talents clothes, he did the legends clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so when this man put his jacket and stuff back on. He was lathered in heat. <laughs> but he stood there sweating, and but he never took anything off. He wouldn't put it over. He's just deadpan the whole time. And so the, the moral, I literally lost my mind and go, Randy, that's Dory Funk. <laughs> <laughs> I was my coach right there. Wanted to see if I was willing to uh, introduce young people to the business, and instead we went after a Hall of Famer. <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you, Jerry? I what the hell's know. wrong with you? Once 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 a talent, always a talent. <laughs> but then you, you get this when you got back to TV. Mission accomplished. Yes, sir. Mission accomplished. <laughs> That's all I said. I'm like, That's it. Tremendous. We we yeah, I had Randy. We we're you know, 
wet the clothes and, you know, the young kids and all that. All right, Randy, I got the door. He was so excited. Uh, it was Dory Funk. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dory's tough. Oh, no, I'm no. telling you, I never saw anything like it. He was doing the, and he was sweating and you knew it. And I'm going, oh, do I say something? Oh, what's the Jesus Christmas? That's no one never oversold nothing. He never put it over a lick. <laughs> Not even a figure four, man. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, I sold a Chanel that spinning toe hold a million oh, times. Gosh. <laughs> exactly. Well, Bill, we, we sure appreciate your time, man. We nah, know you guys are great. what great calls you got. And then man, I, I'm I'm thrilled to death. This is your second time on air, and I, let's, 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 we'll, we'll be calling you for another one, well, man. As long as I'm on more times than Dreamer and Al Snow. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I'm going to tweet them and tell them this is my second time. <laughs> exactly. Now, you guys are awesome. I, I, I always appreciate catching up. This, this, like, in the hustle bustle of everything we do, these times make everything worth it. Yeah. So I – I appreciate the conversation and, and being able to laugh and, and you guys share with me as well. So thank you very much. Yeah. You Bill, I've always loved you. You've always got such a good guy. It's great to see you for the second time on here. Yeah, man. I'm, <laughs> listen, it's That's only, right. it's only May's coming up. There's still a lot of months left. You dang right. It is. We, we got more we, stories to tell. <laughs>